Hi, and welcome to episode number five of the Te Fox Texas Family Law Podcast. I'm Laura Hayes, your host. I'm a partner in the Dallas office at Fox Rothschild, and I'm here today with both of my associates, Aaron Garza and Jamie Lee Denton. We're going to talk about child support issues and how to calculate it in Texas, but also creative alternatives to child support that can be accomplished by agreement of the parties. So the first thing I'll talk about is um, how to calculate child support in Texas. This is one of the biggest questions I get. Um, and Texas is based on a percentage of the paying party's income. There are some states where child support is calculated using the resources of both parents, but in Texas, it's just the paying party's resources. And it's calculated using the net income. So you take the person's gross income, you take out taxes, and you take out payments for health insurance, and you get to a net number. And that is, for child support purposes, that net number is then calculated at either 20% for one child, 25% for two children, and then 30%, et cetera, for three children. Um, but there is a cap on the net resources. So that cap is $9,200 a month. So if the net resources of the paying party are near more than 9,200, the child support calculation stops at that $9,200. So in other words, even if a party says, makes, say, $10,000 a month of net resources, their child support is still calculated based on if, if they earned the net, net income of 9,200. So what that means is for one child, at, at the max guideline amount, one child, the paying party would pay $1,840 for two children. It's 25% of that $9,200 number, which is $2,300. And then for three children, it would be, again, 30% of that $9,200, which would be $2,760 a month. That's the basics of child support. Now, that being said, if somebody makes more than that net income, that doesn't mean that you can't get more child support. That just means that that's how it's calculated on a monthly basis according to the family code. But there's other ways to get either more child support if somebody makes significant more significant amount of money um, or, you know, there's other alternatives, which we're going to talk about today, but those are the basics for calculating child support um, under the Texas Family Code. One thing that people ask is how child support is affected by the parenting schedule, and the short answer on that is that it's not by Texas law or by statute. But child support um, can be affected by the parenting schedule if parents agree themselves to, to do so. And child support can also be where each parent pays 50-50 of the fees or the child expenses. So technically, there's really no set child support. So that, but those kinds of arrangements, can you, well, sometimes the court can rule on that depending on um, the parenting schedule. And then sometimes those agreements on child support can be done by agreement of the parties. Generally, the court, if there's an agreement of the parties, whether it's to pay no child support or pay some kind of um, alternative child support that's not based on the guidelines, the parties will have to agree that modification from the guidelines is in the best interest of the parties. Um, and sometimes the court looks at it. I mean, you can go into different courts and if, you know, the parties make about the same amount of money and the court orders a 50-50 schedule, then sometimes the judge will say no child support. Uh, other times courts, you know, will do an offset. Other times, you know, they'll just make, even if it is a 50-50 schedule for whatever reason, they, they will make the paying party pay the amount under the Texas Child Support Guidelines. But it's all a case-by-case -case basis, but the court does follow the Texas Child Support Guidelines. 
or even if there's an agreement of the party, they have to look at it and make sure that the agreements are in the best interest of the, of the children. And Laura, you mentioned an offset. So an offset is where the court looks at the child support guidelines for mom and for dad, and then it offsets to see who's going to be paying the remaining child support. So um, for example, if the dad makes $1,000 and then, which probably not likely, but then makes the mom makes $500, then the dad's going to end up paying the remaining $500 in child support. Right. So, well, let's say that. So, the, if the, cal the child support calculator is that the dad would pay $1,000 in child support, and then the mom's child support calculator <laughs> says that she would have to pay $500, then the court would offset that and just say, okay, dad, you then have to pay $500 to mom to as an offset child support amount, in, in lieu of saying, okay, the guideline says $1,000 and making dad pay the $1,000 per month. So, the court can offset it based on the party's income, especially if there's a big disparity in income between the parties. The court will sometimes look at that. And if there's no other agreement, sometimes, um, for example, the parties agree that one parent's going to pay all the unreimbursed medical expenses and all the extracurricular expenses, and then the offset wouldn't take place because the child's provided for in another way. But yes, the offset does occur in some cases. Okay. And so uh, then I kind of want to segue into some different kinds of agreements the parties can make about child support, especially when there's either higher net worth cases or where one party makes significantly more than the other party. There's a lot of creative ways that people can um, make agreements for child support or put them in the court orders because, you know, a lot of times the parties, what the parties don't understand sometimes coming into these cases is that if the court orders one parent to pay the other parent, that covers all the expenses. It doesn't cover, you know, people leave the divorce and then they say, well, I want dad to have to pay 50% of the baseball expenses. Or, well, no, according to the court, the child support covers all that. Whatever the payment is, that's it. The parents can only do everything else by agreement. So if dad, you know, both parents agree to pay the baseball or cheerleading or whatever it is expenses, that's fine. But otherwise, it's covered by the child support. And people don't necessarily recognize that in the beginning. And they think, oh, well, I'm going to get X number of dollars in child support. But the other parent's also going to have to pay half of everything else. That's not the case. So there's different creative ways that um, you can cover those expenses and, and then some, and think about ahead to other things like college planning, cars, um, even big events like weddings. And I think Erin's going to talk to us a little bit about that. Right, exactly, Laura. And you touched on it that child support is really intended to cover the basic needs of the child. So food, accommodations, if they have health care expenses, those sort of things. But if you have a child in baseball or cheerleading, any other extracurricular activities, or even if you just want to consider how to best prepare them for the expenses they're going to encounter in college after the child support obligation technically terminates, those are things to be thinking about before you get the decree officially drafted and signed off on by the court. So to kind of take it one point at a time, something that we've seen become a big issue in cases is planning for educational expenses that come up. This can be high school educational expenses, especially in areas like Dallas, Fort Worth, where you have several private schools that children often attend um, and other tutoring options that parents like to take advantage of as well, leading into college tuition and the expenses that your child will incur at that stage of their life as well. We actually have a CLE coming up next week where we'll be discussing how educational expenses interact with lawyers and other experts, you want to call them in their professions, such as financial planners, and how you can work together with different 
professions to really accomplish your goal there. there. One of the ways that we've seen this is to come to an agreement on a 529 plan, for example. And Laura, you and I recently handled a case where we were dealing with an individual who had entered into an agreement with her ex before the degree was drafted that each party would contribute a certain amount to the 529 plan for their children. And it's important to note that when you're doing this, you wanna make sure that there are certain things set out before the decree is signed. You wanna know how much money do you want your ex to contribute to this 529 plan? What is the expectation there? You also wanna clarify for your benefit and your children's benefit, who's the account owner on that 529 plan? And what rights do they have to manage that account? Something individuals may not realize and where a financial planner may come into play as well is the funds in a 529 account are intended to be used for educational expenses, going back to tutoring, private school, college tuition, but they can technically be used for non-educational expenses, just subject to a tax penalty. Now, if mom has a 529 plan set up for her two children, dad is the account owner, and he takes funds out of that 529 plan uses them for non-educational expenses, that's something mom probably isn't going to like too much. Technically, it's okay under the law as long as he pays the tax penalty. But if you want it specifically set forth in the decree that that is not permissible, that's something that you need to discuss with attorneys such as Laura, Jamie Lee, or myself to make sure that we get the proper language in there to protect you and ultimately to protect your child's interests. Sure. And just, you know, to jump in a little bit and clarify, the court doesn't have the jurisdiction, the family court doesn't have the jurisdiction to order anybody to pay for their children's education uh, post after 18 years old. So, but, but a lot of parties want to set aside those funds and that's fine if both parties want to. So when you're talking about 529 plans or those kinds of contributions being in the decree, it has to be done by agreement of the parties and it's not necessarily done because, uh, well, it's not done by a judge ordering that because the judge doesn't have the jurisdiction to order that. But a lot of people want to set aside those expenses and want to make sure both parents are contributing to that early on um, as part of the divorce. So if they come to those agreements, that's great. But you're right, you do have to think about, you know, who's going to control the account, what can can't be the funds be used for, and then should there be an accounting at any point um, before you set up these accounts. And all those things have to be thought of in advance. Or what happens if one party agrees to contribute a certain amount, but then actually doesn't do that. Right, there are several implications, especially when you're talking about 529 plans. Drawing it back even to activities such as sports teams, travel teams, other things that your children may enjoy doing before a divorce comes to the table and that they want to continue to do even after their parents are divorced you wanna make sure that you are planning for those activities with your spouse. It is um, not the court's obligation to order that any parent pay for these activities. Judge can't say, mom, you're ordered to pay X amount, dad, you're ordered to pay this amount for so-and-so's baseball travel team or summer camp, church camp, whatever it might be. Like Laura mentioned, these are activities that the parties need to agree for in advance that there will be funds explicitly set aside to make sure that the kids can continue participating. Right. One question I get a lot is when the parties find out what the child support amount under the Texas Family Code is, they say, well, that's not going to cover all the expenses. Well, that's probably true, but that's where you have to really think about it early on in 
um, a negotiation of what other expenses does your child need. Um, if you're already in tutoring or you're already in counseling or you're already in, you know, travel teams for sports or piano lessons or whatever the case may be, those things add up. And yeah, the, the, the monthly child support doesn't always cover those. So if you can get your soon-to-be ex-spouse or the other parent to agree to those things in writing, it's a lot easier. But of course, you know, some of these expenses too, you don't know at the time, but planning ahead for, hey, if these expenses come up, they have to be done by agreement. So that if, you know, uh, one of the children becomes interested in one of these more expensive activities, the, the parties can talk about it in the future and either do it by agreement or the party enrolling the child in that activity realizes that they may be responsible for 100% of those costs and take that into consideration before enrolling the child. And then, you know, summer camps and all of these things, raising kids is not <laughs> um, an inexpensive endeavor. And so, you know, really planning ahead and thinking about these expenses, especially if the case is going on when the children are younger and you may not, you know, parents may not have the experience to think about these things ahead, it's really important to set aside, um, you know, provisions in an agreement for how these major expenses can be taken care of in the future. I think we're going to talk about, you know, are there, is there ability to set aside things for larger purchases, like what happens when a child turns 16? Is, you know, are both parents going to buy a car? Is only one parent going to buy the car? Who's going to be responsible for the insurance? Because again, these things are not covered by the child support and the court doesn't have jurisdiction to order a party to pay for a car for a child. But these are important and very expensive things. And so having this conversation between parents early on is, you know, helps, sometimes helps make it less painful when it comes to actually making that expense. That's an advantage of working with an attorney and really having a good conversation at the outset of any divorce process where your attorney can advise you on what we're supposed to be looking for going forward. When the kid turns 16, do you need a car? Is your child most likely going to get married one day? Probably, hopefully so. That's what they would like. How are you going to plan for those big expenses like you mentioned? Right. And, you know, a lot of parties, if, if you can get these agreements in place for, during the process of the divorce or whatever, it's a whole lot easier than to wait until it actually occurs. If you're divorced and the child's 10 and you haven't thought about who's going to buy a car six years later, you're kind of out of luck. And then it's either falls on you because the other party won't agree or the child doesn't get a car because, you know, that the money hasn't been set aside and there's not enough money. But if you think about them in advance, even it's hard when you're, you know, you're, you're arguing over, custody and possession and child support for a six-year-old, it's hard to think about what might happen 10 years down the road, but, you know, all these kids are going to eventually have these major expenses, um, and it's easier to think about ahead, well, if you can, instead of waiting for the last minute, and then, you know, it's much more difficult, especially if the other side won't agree at that point. That brings up a good question, Laura. I feel like listeners to the podcast are curious. What happens with the child support if the parent paying child support happens to pass away unexpectedly? Does the child support obligation go away? Or is there still some sort of mechanism put in place to ensure that the child continues to receive the funds that they need, again, for their basic needs, as well as any other expensive expenses that have been agreed to previously? Sure. So if the paying party passes away before the child turns 18 and graduates from high school, the, the form book language says that it remains an obligation of that parent's estate. 
what does that mean? That means that you can get the child support money from the parent's estate. But that assumes that that person's estate actually has the funds to pay for it. And not everybody does. Or, you know, you do have the funds at the time of the divorce, for example, but then at the time of the death, there's no money. So, um, you know, people truly don't know the other person's finances. And so one thing that we try to negotiate a lot of times is that the paying parent, and sometimes both parents, but usually the paying parent, will maintain a life insurance policy until such time as the child has turned 18 and um, graduated from high school so that in the event of an untimely death, there are funds that for sure will cover the remainder of the child support expenses. And some parents do agree to have that child, the life insurance in place and you know until they turn 18 and graduate from high school. Some keep that in place until um, the child's much older. That can only be done by agreement, can't be done by the trial court, but you know, to cover those expenses if for some, you know, one of the parents dies early while the child's still in college, there's then money for the child to continue to pay for college or those kinds of things. But um, life insurance and provisions are really key to making sure that there are funds in case something tragic happens. And it's always good to know that that's an option and there are other creative child support solutions that you can explore once you consult an attorney. There are also situations in which child support may need to be modified. And Jamie Lee, I think you were going to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the Texas Family Code um, does provide grounds for modification of child support. There are certain hoops that kind of have to be jumped through. Um, the court has to find that the circumstances of the child or the person affected by the order have materially and substantially changed. So that can look at a parent starts making a ton more or a ton less, and that's the parent paying child support, for example. Uh, but another part of that is that it's been three years since the order was rendered or, um, or last modified, and the monthly amount of child support under the order differs from either 20% or $100 from the amount that would be awarded by the Texas guidelines. And um, as you can imagine the expenses for court may may not make it worth it for someone to go fight this and to try to get a hundred dollars less um, child support because there will be hearings and then once someone wants to contest something the other party is going to come in and be like well i don't really like the possession schedule so let's let's try to modify that and then it just becomes a whole nother court process Right, and that's right. I think that further reiterates what Erin and I were talking about a few minutes ago, is that you really need to think about these things ahead of time, even if it may be difficult or it may seem far off, because modification, yes, it's possible, but like you said, oftentimes it ends up being more expensive than the amount that you then receive from the other. Like, yay, you've got a couple more hundred dollars, even a couple more thousand dollars a month, but how much did you spend in attorney's fees to get that couple thousand dollars or a couple hundred dollars extra? So really thinking about these things early on is really important because you can modify, but it's difficult, it's expensive, and then when somebody wants to modify one part of the prior orders, generally the other side is going to want to modify something else, and so it turns into a giant expense. But you know, circumstances do change. You have a party who's making a significant amount of money at the time of the divorce or the original court order um, in the suit-affecting parent-child relationship, and then they lose their job or bankruptcy happens or COVID happens. A lot of people lost their jobs and that was unexpected. And so, you know, we did notice a rise last year in the modifications because of job-related losses or income-related losses um, due to COVID. So, you know, the court's still dealing with some of those. And, those are all determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But again, even if you're the one losing your job, you're obligated to continue paying 
whatever the court order says until such time as it's modified. So if you're the paying parent and you lose your job, you really need to consider filing or, you know, and, and discuss the pros and cons of filing or not filing for that job loss. If it's going to be short term, it may not make sense to file, but if you, you know, it, it, it really is a case-by-case -case consideration because modifications, when you file them, you can request that the child support modification be retroactive to the date, the date of filing or the date the other party was served. So, for example, if you don't end up going to trial for a year, you can ask the court to modify that reduced amount of child support or the increased amount, whichever side you're on, um, back to the date of filing a year prior. But, again, the time, the expense associated with modifications may not be worth it, but something to consider. Something to talk to your lawyer about. Exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the you know, same thing applies when you have an enforcement action. You have uh, a party who doesn't pay child support and you want to go after them. Yes, you can get judgments, um, but again, the time and expense associated with getting the enforcement um, and getting the judgment, and of course, collecting on judgment is really something that you need to talk to a lawyer about to weigh the pros and cons um, and whether you want to go through, you know, a private lawyer like us or if you want to go through the attorney general's office. There are ways to enforce child support as well when a child when a parent's not paying. And that's also it depends on how fast you want it to move. Like if you go through the attorney general's office, they they aren't being paid by you as much or at all. Right. At all. So um so they're gonna move a little slower. They have a lot to handle, whereas your private attorney, you're paying, so we're kind of on your schedule. We're gonna we're gonna make it happen um on your timeline. So I think that's all things that people should consider. That's absolutely right. So, yeah, so there's a lot to consider when child support, even though the family code makes it seem very simple. Here's the calculation. Uh, it's not, as we talked about today, quite that simple, um, but there are a lot of considerations over and above what the, the family code says, um, and that can be done by agreement or by court order. Anyone have a new favorite uh, family law movie or show? No, I should have thought about it before we came today because I didn't think about it. Um, there's a lot going on. Uh, a lot of parent trap. Does that yeah, count? That does count. Has someone used that yet? Yes. Oh, I've that one before. <laughs> well, but technically, there's two versions, so that does count, right? So there's an older version and the newer version. All right, the newer one's what I'm claiming, so. Perfect. Sounds great. Well, thank you guys for joining me today to talk about child support. Thank you.